Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? Also with us today is Max Luckman, one of the founders of Pole.se. Max has worked on Need for Speed, Battlefield 4, Far Cry 3, Just Cause 2, War Thunder, and many others. We've got Watson Wu with us. Watson Wu is an independent composer, sound designer, and field recordist. Watson's worked on Need for Speed, Lexus, Dodge Ram, Transformers War for Cybertron, and many others. You can find him at Watson Wu or WatsonWu.com. And we've got Rob Noakes. Rob Noakes is the founder of SoundDogs.com, supervising sound editor and a field recordist. Rob's worked on Noah, Smurfs 2, and the TV shows Tyrant, Salem, and Bones. You can find him on Twitter at Rob Noakes. Hey, guys. Hey. So what I'd love to do is kind of go around the group here and get a little bit of backstory about how each of us got into this. How did you get started? How did you get rolling in this whole industry? Okay, Max here. We started Pole Position Production about 15 years ago, and it was originally a music production company. Uh, but two of us involved in the company had a great interest in motor racing. One of us was an active GT race driver. And one of the competitors of his on the track was a game developer doing racing games. And that guy eventually asked us to do sound for his games. So that's how it all started. So we started out with trial and error on recording uh, Bernard's GT Porsche race car. Uh, and uh, just one thing just led to another. Cool. Watson, what about you? I went to school for music education, classically trained. And I, all along I've performed in uh, mixed concerts, recorded concerts. And so with that training, that background, I fell into recording sound effects later on. And I was always interested in the sound of vehicles and everything else around that. So I started recording for myself and tried different companies and one job after another and got to record uh, for Need for Speed and other projects and kept going from there. Rob, what about you? Back in uh, 1990, I was working for a guy named Peter Tilley on a movie called uh, Fires Kuwait and we recorded a Land Rover. Uh, That was my first vehicle uh, recording. And after that, we did a movie called The Chase with Charlie Sheen and Christy Swanson, and that was all car chases. So those are the two movies that got me rolling, and we did uh, onboard mics below the body and that kind of stuff. And just over time, just worked on getting it better and better, the technique. Cool. That movie, The Chase, was awesome. I forgot about that movie. That was a really fun movie. Uh, That that was a BMW uh, IR, I think, and... uh, or an IS in uh, 325IR that we used for it. And then we also had the new Viper V10 or V12, V10. Uh, and we you know, went out and, on icy roads and recorded those north of Toronto. That movie basically entirely takes place in the cab of the cars that are being chased and chasing. So it's, it's a heck of a movie to cut your teeth on for vehicle recording. Yeah, with Greg King and, and myself and Yandel Push, uh, Nelson Ferrer, we did that movie way back when. We should mention that uh, this is by far our most international podcast episode yet. We have Rob, who is currently in a hotel in Fiji, and we have Max, who is normally in Sweden, just off a plane in New York City. And Watson, you're in Florida, that's correct? That's correct. 
Yeah, and then obviously I'm in Toronto and Renee's in Dallas, so we're all over the planet here. That's great. Yes. Good times. <laughs> Yay, internet. <Hooray. laughs> can Can I ask something? Um, for sure. Watson, did you have you recorded vehicles for films or for games mostly? What's What's been your starting point for recording vehicles? Uh, for games and libraries. Okay, Rob, you started out doing uh, films, right? Yes. That's interesting. I would like to discuss that later because I think it's a different approach depending on if you're working for games or for films. That's something we could discuss. Definitely. Absolutely. Very different. Well, let's start with uh, pre-production here. What kind of things do you guys feel like you need to know about the shoot, I guess, before you even start packing gear? Like what's, what's on your checklist of things you need to know to even start getting ready to get ready? Uh, Rob, why don't you go first? Well, I need to know what vehicle it is, and I need to know what kind of moves they want. Then from that point, that'll determine type of mechanic or driver that I'm going to try to find to locate with that vehicle, preferably in a location out in the desert, because my preference has always been to drive two hours out into the desert where it's quiet. Uh, Following that, it's budget-related and it's weather-related, uh, following wind patterns and weather patterns to you know, have a high probability of success. Have you ever had weather just completely bust a shoot? Uh, yeah, I did an Austin Mini at one point where the onboards were good, but the, we didn't bother doing the exteriors. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a critical shoot, so it didn't bother me that much, but uh, I had, had one failure, but... That's not bad, considering we've been recording a lot of cars out in uh, the desert since 1996 when we did uh, Cable Guy. Nice. So, Rob, what, can you explain a little further what you mean by following the wind and weather patterns? Sure. Um, especially in the desert, generally speaking, in the morning, the wind is low, and then it picks up anywhere between 11 and 1, 11 and 2. So you have to follow the wind patterns, and then... You also want to find out what the insects are doing at that time of year and also what the chances of rain is. So I use AccuWeather and I'm following. And after a while, there's also airports that have more accurate weather conditions. So I'll confirm the shoot the night before after I see that the weather's on our side. And that, you know, eliminates a lot of headaches because I, d- I definitely don't want to spend all that money and not get the sounds because the clients will be very upset with me. Right. Well, you know, I just thought of another car we did, uh, Breaking Bad, uh, the GT300. Oh, nice. Yeah, we recorded that, so it's hard to remember, but <laughs> that, was a, that, was a, that was a touchy one because you know, the guy was coming up from San Diego with that specific car to match that uh, TV show. When, when you have owners like that, do they tend to want to drive the car themselves? Like how comfortable are they handing it over to a different driver? Uh, in the case, I try to get mechanics and uh, professional drivers. So I try to get the person with the car. Most people won't hand their car over. So I, sp- I focus mainly on getting the right person who's interested in doing it. I'm not interested in people that are just in it for the money because, you know, then, you know, as soon as you go over your four-hour time limit, they're out the door, you know? Right. So motivation and interest and someone who's doing it not just for monetary reasons, but for social reasons and for interest. Uh, Watson and Max, what kind of, what kind of video game-specific pre-production are we leaving out here? Max, you want to go first? Um, 
Yes. When it comes to, from my perspective, uh, I'm the one who decides what maneuvers I need. Um, I guess that's the difference between film and game as well. Because I need what maneuvers are needed to to make a good representation of that vehicle in the audio engine in the game. Uh, I also always try to find cars with modified exhaust pipes. Uh, even if it's a standard car in the actual game, it's, it's not sounding good enough. So I try to find modified exhaust pipes on all cars. It's good to know the, the location of the vehicle so that we can find a good path to drive. I prefer to be on racetracks even with standard cars because it's a much more controlled and safe environment and it always makes for a better result, I think. Right. And I guess with games, it seems like the onboards would carry a heavier importance than they would with film. Absolutely. It's a much more, much more focus on the onboards. Cool. Watson, what about you? Uh, for games, I worked with companies that knew what they wanted with a shot list. And I worked with companies who never done it, no experience. So I would have to make up the list myself. So I usually want to see the game, see what prototypes they have, and make up my own shot list. And I also ask how many channels they want, any desirable microphones they already know of, um, and go from there. So it is very different from films uh, and uh, commercials I've worked on. I've worked on projects where it's a last minute, didn't know what they wanted, so I had to record as much as possible in a half a day to a full day. Cool. So are you guys in charge of when someone approaches you guys to record the sounds of a vehicle, do they have the access to the vehicle or do they just come and say, I need this vehicle and it's up to you guys to source the vehicle, the driver, everything? Most of the cases, this is Max, by the way, uh, most of the cases we source the car, we find the location and we sort everything and we just clear the budget with the client. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they source the car and that can be the case sometimes with manufacturers and when there's licenses involved and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Rob, for film, how are, are you getting, as you said, like for Breaking Bad, is it often the car that was actually used in the shoot or are you uh, coming up with cars on your own that might sound better? Uh, it's always we're coming up with cars on our own. Generally speaking, when a non-sound effects recordist picks a location or a vehicle, it doesn't. Uh, it's not as good as what we would have done if they'd just left it to us. For sure. So I've had that on X-Men where we ended up next to a rock quarry with heavy trucks, and I'm just like, okay, well, <laughs> let's make the best of it. And then on another movie... Um, God, it was an Ashton Kutcher movie where he's in a go-kart uh, with Bernie Mac. It's, the go-kart didn't sound that great. So, you know, I went and found a guy out at Willow Springs who had a, a sweet-sounding go-kart, and, you know, I did it right. So uh, gen- generally speaking, I just prefer to take care of everything. I have had one instance on uh, Race to Witch Mountain where we got the exact vehicles, all the taxis and uh, the Winnebago, and uh, pr- we got professional drivers, that the stunt drivers, and it was an amazing experience, but it cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, they don't want to spend that kind of money. Uh, this is Watson. Uh, most of the time, um, the, the client wants me to find the vehicles and uh, deal with them on my own. That way, they only deal with me directly. 
And how do you guys go about finding the vehicles? Do you, are you members of clubs, like auto clubs, or do you just uh, Google searching? Um, this is Watson. I attend quite a bit of car shows as much as possible and make friends with these guys. And the key words I use when I know those guys is that, can they recommend somebody with cars who are approachable? Yeah, just like what Rob said, they're, they're motivated by social reason. Uh, interests. They like to push their cars uh, where often they cannot unless they're on a track or a top secret road. Max, how do you go about finding cars and drivers? Uh, It differs. First, um, I grew up on racetracks more or less and we also have Bernard in Paul who's an active race driver so we have a lot of connections in Sweden and in Europe so we always go through these people first. And if we can't find what we need by them, which is rare, then we use internet and Google. Also, all kinds of car clubs, forums and stuff like that is of a big help we need it. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I mean, it's in my experience, is about the same too. Anytime you, you need a car or, or you come across as, uh, a, an interesting car, uh, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be through somebody you know or through some people that you've on purpose been trying to go get associated with. It's really, really hard to just Google a car and find somebody randomly that's going to be willing to let you strap a bunch of mics to it and record it. Car shows are really, really good for that. I had a, fil- I had a little indie film I worked on where it had, I, it had an old truck, you know, and the truck was like a 77 Ford pickup. But that damn truck had 27 minutes of screen time because they were just driving it all over the place. So, you know, one of my buddies' dad had a truck that was just like it, and that's how I went and got that truck and strapped it up for a day. I mean, the vast majority of vehicles I've run into have been that way, for sure. There's also, though, the case with the more rare vehicles, like we recorded over 30 vehicles for War Thunder, which is all authentic old tanks and planes from World War II. And those are a bit more rare to find among your friends. True, so then yeah. you use internet and websites and all kind of sources that you can find. And Watson, you worked for some of the manufacturers directly, right? Lexus and, and Ram? Not, not the directly with manufacturer. The production company uh, would ask me to find the specific cars or trucks and you know, work it out so that I had to uh, do a full set of recordings for these vehicles. That was, again, on my own to find those cars. But there are quite a bit of Lexus and uh, Dodge Ram trucks all over here. So I'm fortunate with that. Uh, Let's talk locations. What do you guys value? What do you think is important to have in a a location to record a vehicle? Okay, Max here. I prefer to find a racetrack nearby where the where the vehicle is, or an airfield works well too, unless there's no traffic on it, of course, because you want to avoid highways, you want to, you want to avoid uh, airports nearby. Do you pay for racetrack time? Yes. Cool. And if we can bring several cars at the same time, that's good. If not, then that's the case. But I prefer to pay for racetrack time than go on a public road, because you have to go quite fast sometimes. And uh, even if you go with a safe driver, which you never really know beforehand when you find cars. 
but even if it's a safe driver, it can be quite difficult for other people on the roads. So you want to avoid that. It can be too dangerous, I think. Right. Rob, what about you? Uh, I like to, I mean, if I had the budget, I'd rent a track. And in one case on Fast and Furious, I was uh, helping Bruce Stambler out on it. And uh, the driver they had was uh, sliding almost directly into me. So my uh, one experience on a track was not that uh, great. Uh, we did rent an airport <laughs> uh, for uh, Black Dog, the semi-truck movie way back in, I guess, I can't remember, it was for Steve Fleck. But, you know, generally speaking, the budgets, they just don't have the budgets to rent tracks because they're talking like $2,000 a day. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, if I can get a vehicle for 1000 or 700 that's what my clients are looking for. So, and I, I do two vehicles in a day, four hours per vehicle. So I'm looking for a desolate, quiet place with no airplanes and minimal birds or insects. And uh, I have a, a sweet spot out way out in the desert that I have that uh, I've been using for um, about six years now. Cool. And I might see maybe three cars an hour. Right. So we, we have hand signals set for, you know, for any oncoming traffic. Yeah, I'm still on the on the search for my own kind of exurb sweet spot. I've, I came close once, but I ended up being really wrong about some of the electromagnetic fields in the area. Mm-hmm. Watson, what about you? What are you looking for in a place to record? Not far from me is a place I call my top secret road. And um, what's great about it is that it, it's about one and a half miles long and mostly pretty smooth. So it's got to be a very smooth road where when you're driving, you're not going to hear tire sounds and rocks flying around. So that's very, very crucial to me. And it's wide enough that when you're with the driver doing the onboards, you can see what's going on. So if an animal is spreading by, you could warn a driver. Or traffic, but traffic is very rare in that area. And so I could watch my recorder, watch for traffic, and watch the needle for the uh, oil temperature. So that's very crucial to me. I don't want to burn up any cars especially very, very expensive cars. And so that's what I have to do. I have to um, alternate back and forth and multitask. Is it usually just you out there alone? Uh, depending on the budget and what, what I have to do. I, I sometimes will bring my assistants and they'll hold a walkie-talkie and stand by areas where they make it look for officers, mm-hmm. for example, <laughs> and give us an indication, you know, don't go that fast. And, um, but quite often we, we cheat a little, we just hit high RPMs, which may make it sound pretty fast. Cool. And Rob, what kind of uh, crew do you tend to use? Uh, I like to go with two, two assistants. I work with a guy named Dan Gamash over at King Soundworks a lot. Who's, uh, turned out to be a phenomenal find. Uh, he's Greg King's assistant and, uh, he's great to work with. So what we generally do is we don't use walkies. Because I, in my experience, I like less talking and more recording. So <laughs> I like to put the assistants in their spots after we wire the car. I work with the driver directly and uh, we go through a pattern, you know. So uh, basically it's a start away, pass by, pass by, up, stop. And we do that at all the speed intervals. 
And that makes it really easy for a sound editor to cut between takes. So if, you know, the 20 is not working, they can, you know, go to the 30, that kind of idea. Uh, three people. And that gives us uh, pass-bys and corner, corner turns. I think you've written about that, haven't you? Your, your basic technique? Yeah. I had a map even and showed people how I lay it out. So I could probably share that with you somewhere. I have it. I remember reading it. It's, and, and it's that on Designing item. Sound. Oh, is it? Yeah, a few years ago. We can uh, provide a link on the website for that. Yeah. That that heavily influenced the way I recorded the next several vehicles that I did, and it, and it did. It helped a ton. You know, with the indie films that I'm working on, the lower speeds are way more important than the higher speeds. But having a routine like that really helped me out. So thanks for putting that up there. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I, I just found through experience there was a lot of time wasting and a lot of talking, and and you can't have too many cooks running it because then you have people saying, we should do that, we should do this. It's like... No, we got to record this car. We only have this amount of time. And then, you know, we got to get it done because the more efficient you are, the more sounds you can record. Yep. And then you could focus on doing specific moves or things that didn't go right. You can redo them. You know, if you got, you know, hit by an airplane, you could redo one of the moves, et cetera, or one of the speeds. So, or you can go to inclines and hills and, or go do more corner turns or go do gravels, out, you know, gravel spins and stuff like that. So... Just try to get as much as possible for the client. So when you're when you're setting up your shot sheet, I guess, how much of that kind of stuff is covered with your basic routine, and how much do you do you go through and specify? And again, I'm still talking pre-production here. Well, either I'll look at the film or the client will tell me what they want. So my focus is I figure out what they need, how much of that fits into the basic routine. So we do the basic routine and then we focus our energy on the main specific needs of the film, whether it's, you know, gravel or dirt or spin outs or, you know, J turns, that kind of stuff, donuts. Then, then we put all the effort into that. So the routine gives us like a working, it gives the editor a lot of choices to work from. Mm -hmm. And then the specifics are what they've asked for specifically drunken swerves, you know, stuff like that. And are, are usually brought on before the cut is finished, I, I'm assuming? Uh, no, it's, uh, it, well, it can be at any time. It's just like, hey, we need these cars recorded. They'll send me a picture. Like for the Rover in Australia, they sent me every shot of the, the Land Rover we were doing. So then I could really see what surfaces I need, what speeds I need, and how to allocate time to, do, to achieve it. Yeah, I've definitely, I've done exactly that with some of the films that I've worked on where I'll go through and I'll just cut out every frame of the vehicles uh, on screen and just make one super cut of that vehicle and chuck it on an iPad. And then I can just bring it out and we can look at this move and then the next move and we could just go execute that move a couple of times and then move on. By the end of it, I mean, I've, I haven't recorded anything extra at that point, but by the end of that, I've got everything I need to, uh, to do the edit. Yeah. You know, I, I worked for Mark Mangini on The Ghost of Girlfriend's Pass, mm -hmm. uh, and they had a um, Jaguar in it, and Mark had a very specific move he needed, like this long, slow-mo kind of come turn in. So for that, we had to like go, okay, find a big elbow, and then do that move and you know create that sound specific to that shot. But most of the time, you'll find that the uh, routine will cover a lot of the lot of the moves. Cool, Max. Did you have any uh, additions to how you crew up and how you get ready? 
Um, no, we always go at least two people from Poland. Um, sometimes more. Uh, if if there's only one from Poland can go, then we bring. Uh, we worked a lot with Elam Hoffman, who's done Gravity, for instance, uh, and bring him along to help us out. And that's also very good because he has more of the film focus than we have. We have more of the game focus, so it's uh, he's a very good complement to us. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk actual recording now. What kind of mics are you bringing in your in your basic kit? What basic parts of the car are you looking to cover? And what's your what's your broad thought process on that kind of stuff? Max, while you're while we got you here, why don't you start for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, it depends a bit on what kind of car it is. If it's a extreme race car, like we did the Lamborghini once on a track, uh, then you're not really allowed to attach uh, whatever you like to. Same thing. We have recorded some Formula cars, GP2s and GP3s for uh, for teams simulators, uh, and they were even worried about the phantom power in the cables. We had to put tape everywhere where the cables were run because the cables could set the car's chassis on fire. So uh, it, it really depends on the situation. But if I could choose, then we have a couple of RE50s that we put on exhaust pipes along with some DPA 4062s. Mm -hmm. In the engine we have 4061s usually. Sometimes something bigger as well could be a PZM crown or something like that. On board, it's great with an uh, RSM191 or with uh, two DPA 4061s. Cool. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. That's what we have on board the car. Cool. And that, I guess for video games, your main sound is going to come from your exhaust and your and your engine, correct? Um, yeah, not necessarily. You might want to put a microphone down the intake part of the engine, of course, but. Uh, and if you have, depend on the camera views you have, sometimes you have the, the interior view as well, and then you need that sound too. Right. Cool. Watson, what about you? Um, oh, there were so many microphones. <laughs> uh, right, let's start with the passbys. Um, quite often I'll use my Sennheiser 418S, and sometimes we use the RSM191 Neumann, mm -hmm. sometimes long shotgun mics for the really far passbys, like the Neumann 82i. And what's been working well is the Rode NTG-8, really long shotgun mic, and very, very directional. For the onboards, we use the DPA-4061s, the Royal Avaliers, and uh, some of the Countrymen. Uh, the exhaust could be Sennheiser 421, some of the row dynamic mics and the sure dynamic mics. And um, we'll use uh, anywhere like a road pin mic, lavalier uh, for an in-cab, along with the uh, DPA 4061s. So you do heavy lav work, I guess. Just for, Is that for placement? Placement. And also the proximity is very small on quite a bit of the lavalier. So if I'm using a large diaphragm, I'm going to capture a lot of unwanted sounds. So it's through a lot of trial and error. I see what works out in what area. And you said you had a 421 for the exhaust? Uh, sometimes. It depends on the car. 
How do you mount that? You just tape it to the bumper or? There are a lot of tricks. <laughs> if you if you saw my Jaguar recording for a road microphone, uh, that would give you some idea of how things can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting to record that car. Uh, yeah, it's a very, it's, I love and hate that mic. <laughs> the odd shape. And um, some of the guys who record a lot of cars know what I'm talking about. Cool. Rob, what about you? Uh, like Watson, I have a, a lot of mics, so I'll, I can only mention the ones I can remember. The mics I choose are based on the physical space in the car and matching it to what the mic sounds like. So larger mics I prefer adjacent to the muffler and medium close to the muffler, staying away from uh, tire noise as best as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do a lot of drafting under the body. Um, And so if I don't have a lot of room, I I really like the uh, Sankin Cub 01 uh, microphone. Uh, I'll use the Sennheiser E835, which uh, Richard Yawn, who's a supervisor over at Sony, who he introduced me to that microphone on... um, Dukes of Hazard, uh, and uh, you know, if I get a big car with a lot of low end, I like to put a Yamaha Subkick on it, and uh, it's it's not a pretty pretty mic to listen to, but when you lay that Subkick under a clean sound, it just adds a lot of fatness to it. it. You know, assuming you have a vehicle that has that kind of low end. What is that mic? Is that like a contact mic or what is it? Uh, a Yamaha Subkick is is used. It's like a snare drum microphone that's used for recording kick drums. Huh. So it's like a 10-inch microphone. And, uh, <laughs> and it took me a while to find, figure out how to use it effectively. But I found on doing, I was doing some Baja Racers um for a movie and it just it, wow just when you stick it under clean sounding mics it just adds a lot of bottom to it and low end that sound designers like we have used it on tanks as well it's great for that yeah i i wouldn't play it by itself because it's not clean up top but it just adds a lot of warmth in the bottom yeah right um, on the muffler I, I can use a neumann u89 uh, U87 and AKG C4000B is a mic I really like. Uh, sure SM44. And the engine and under the body, you know, the Cub 01 is great for the engine. It's uh, got enough of a low end, and the intake's a great spot to, to get, as Max had mentioned. And again, I'm always looking for different sounds in the engine. So it's generally on the left side and the right side, and I'm always looking for drafting positions in the engine and under the body. And I use bungee cords and zip ties to safely secure microphones. Now, with regards to drafting, again, that's something that I I learned a lot from what you wrote, Rob. Can you just explain to us a little bit about what that concept is and and about some of the things that you do to achieve that? Well, what happens if, if wind hits a microphone, it sounds bad. So what I'm looking for is I'll sacrifice, say, fidelity and use a smaller microphone and put it in a spot where the wind's not going to hit the microphone. It's just like cars following each other, drafting in a race. This is exactly what I'm doing with a microphone. So inside the engine compartment, you know, I'll go behind something so the, the mic's not getting hit by air or by the fan. So that's just the main thing is if wind's hitting the mic, then you got to put it behind something. Yeah, I learned a real hard lesson one day about how much air moves around inside of a, the hood. Yeah, exactly. 
I figured because it was enclosed that I could just put a mic wherever, and I was very, very wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now, the one thing I should add about the engine compartment, and this is one of the reasons why I also mic under the body, is that the engine compartment can sound a bit like a dyno, and it's like, so it doesn't have that movement in life. And the underbelly mics, the undercarriage mics, they have reflections of different surfaces that that tell you that the car is moving. Right. And so I like to I like the underbelly mics a lot. Um one other one that I've discovered relatively recently for vehicle recording is the is that Crown PZM mic that Max was talking about. I mounted one of those to the license plate of my motorcycle a while back and it just gave me this exact perfect throaty sound of the exhaust and it was perfectly drafted because I mean, the license plate just blocked all of the wind from coming at it. I didn't even have any wind protection on it. And, uh, and I was going 80 down the highway, and it just worked perfectly. It sounded like somebody just walking behind it with a boom. It was, it was very eye-opening to me to use a PZM right there. Because it's got such a wide pattern. Yeah, it's, it's a great microphone for many things. It is. We, we've been using it on the tracks, on the tanks as well. It's, you get them really isolated and crystal clear. Yeah, for sure. Rob, explain to me how you do large diaphragm condensers on the exhaust. Because I can't, I can't figure out how to do that at all. Okay, well, uh, I, have, I bought a sheet of neoprene about five years ago for $100. And I'm still using it. So... Uh, <laughs> What I try to do is I wrap a mic in neoprene and so that I'm getting any rid of any transmission. And sometimes you want transmission, but in the case of the muffler, it's not what I'm looking for. Um, and then I'm using wind protection on the mic. Like, um, and what I'll do is I'll figure out holes or things I can hook the bungee cords onto. And I'm bungeeing around either the license plate or near the muffler, the way low frequency emanates from the exhaust systems, it kind of spreads. So if you're too close to the muffler, you're going to get a very dry, bland sound. So you, you, you want to have one close to the muffler, but then also one away so the sound is spreading. And you just find hooks and you always try to cross your bungee cords so that the mic's never going to move and fly out or fall out. And uh, then you go 80 miles an hour and see how what the wind's like and see if it sounds good, and then you know you're right. How much testing of the rig do you guys do before you start really rolling takes? Just watching. No. Um, sometimes it could be you know, a few minutes. Uh, sometimes it's perfect right away. It's pretty much through experience, and I tend to look at the rear of the car quite often and see how the wind would travel. For example... Every Porsche I've recorded worked right away. There's something about the Porsche body that the exhaust always comes out well. And of course, the engine is in the back, so you're not going to get a lot of wind going into the engine hood. So it's pretty much through trial and error, and uh, pretty soon you'll, you'll get less error. Yeah, I guess once you've recorded 100 cars, then you pretty much know what stuff is going to work, and you're only experimenting around the edges. Exactly. But once again, if you're recording race cars, you have FIA uh, monitoring everything you do. So you have to follow their standards as well. So even if I'm quite positive about that the gear will be 
stuck where it is. They are not. So you might have to do a few laps, then it has to come in and they have to check everything, make sure that it's really stuck. They might have some saying about a few things that you need to move around before you can go out again. So it, it's always depending on the situation as well. So when you guys have the cars all mic'd up, you have you know your eight mics on the car, how do you go about monitoring them all? Are you constantly going from mic to mic to mic or do you just pick the two most important and monitor them or do you have them all? How, how do you guys go about it? Max, here. Oh, once again, depends on the situation. If, if it's a car where you can actually go in the car, then you can monitor it as you, as you go and then you take a break and you listen through everything more carefully without the, the live noise as well. If it's race cars with only one seat for the driver, then you need to get the recorder in there, ask him to do a few blips to set the levels, and then you need to check it in between the stints. The worst thing I've experienced was with uh, the GP2 and GP3 cars, where they had to get rid of the side pods for me to reach the recorders every time. And they were not too happy about that. Luckily, it was them who asked me to come, so they kind of had to do it anyway. Uh, but that makes things a bit tricky. Miss <laughs> um, Watson, I really like my sound devices, 788 recorder. Uh, when I'm with the driver, and also my really good remote audio headphones. Those things are great. I use them a lot for recording loud sounds like guns and loud cars. So I could monitor as I'm recording every channel. Um, so I'll, I'll pretty much go right away to the exhaust where it's usually the loudest and adjust those first. And you know, from being able to watch all the meters, I could pretty much tell if the engine's gonna work or not right away. So the priorities are yeah, to listen to the exhaust, see how well you can control it, and you also give really clear instructions to the driver. But you often sit in the car with and, and monitor? Or how often do you send your rig out uh, without you being on board? Uh, depends on the budget, of course. If I'm working alone, um, I'll do the uh, onboards first, assuming that's the more priority. And once we have everything we need, that when he guns the car and it becomes very loud and it's still manageable through a recorder and microphones, I will then jump out and grab my 744 with the shotgun mic and do the pass-bys as my onboard uh, recorder. Cool. So I could do two at a time. Be great. Rob, how do you go about monitoring? Uh, the first, uh, after I get the car wired, uh, we go out and do the loudest test move possible. And I set my levels based on that and uh, listen back to it. If it all checks out, I just let it go in the car. We strap it in, uh, strap it in with a seatbelt and some bungee cords and uh, just let it go wild. Cool. Do you guys record with limiters or without limiters? I dislike limiters. I never use limiters. Okay. Opposite, I always use limiters. Max, what do you do? Uh, we didn't use limiters on previous recordings, but we started to use limiters and run the preamps a bit harder because I think it gets you get a nicer and a fatter sound from that. Uh, not all recorders uh, let us use limiters, though. Like on the 788s, you can't record in the 96 and use limiters, so that one goes without. Right. Uh, but the sax confusion that we have and the smaller sound devices that we have, they allow us to use limiters. 
I have one of these FR2s as well, and that has limiters too. I'm in, I'm in Rob's camp. I, I'm of the, of the opinion that if you're recording at 24 bits, the, the way to maximize that is just to cut softer. I've been able to gain up recordings 20, 25 dB and have them still sound beautiful when you record them at 24 bits. So I just leave myself lots of headroom and don't use limiters. I, I do it's record so- hot, though. So it's not like I'm backing off that much. I'm, I'm getting as hot as I can go. Yeah. So what is it about limiters that, that bothers you? It, it flattens the sound to me and it just doesn't sound natural. Uh, it's, I don't have control of it and I don't like the sound of it. I, I can't really explain it. Just never, just doesn't sound real to me. Right. You know, I think that's the editor's choice, the sound designer's choice. They can uh, fatten the sound however they like. And Watson's, what's your case for using limiters? Like Max, uh, I tend to try to find vehicles that have been modified that sound a lot louder. So just just the all the all the shots I've had to do were mostly action related. So we have to push the car fast, get the RPM way up there, the red line. And so it's just easier to control the sound. And depending on how you what microphones you use and the placements, um, it's gonna sound really good. Cool. So Rob, uh we heard that Watson's using the sound device of seven eighty eight and uh Max has got the Zaxcom. Uh, what are you using? I have the Zaxcom Diva 5, and I also have the uh, Zaxcom Max, but I'm using the Diva 5 for the onboards. Yeah, we used to have a Diva 5. It's a cool box. Uh, I, you can hammer that thing so hard, and it sounds great. So Yep. And it's it's built like a tank, too. Yeah, it's very uh, it's, it's more menu-driven than the sound devices stuff is. The sound devices stuff is a lot more, I don't know, keystroke-y. They both sound really good. I'm back down to a 788 as far as what I'm recording to, but the the Diva was fun while we had one around. How do you like that Max? It sounds great. I'm just not a fan of the buttons and controls, the way they designed the unit. It's a little bit more like sound devices, and I'm completely in the ultra minority. (laughs) So, you know, let's just leave it at that. I prefer the Diva 5 and the way it's set up than, than anything else. Do you use any kind of mixer on the front end? Uh, I mean, I use the, the little trim pots, but as uh, soon as I get stuff set, I, I'm usually not ever touching anything. I mean, unless I'm doing pass-bys, and my technique for pass-bys is we always start from slow to fa- go faster. So I set my levels hot, and then I dra- generally lower the level as we get faster and faster, which tends to be louder and louder. Meaning you do one pass by at a certain speed, then the next pass by at a next speed. So as with each pass by, he's getting faster. So you have to lower it for each one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you lower it incrementally. Um, with a two-man crew, about how long does it take to wire up the onboards on, say, a, a moderately accessible, not too challenging car? Miss um, Watson, how many channels are we talking about? I mean, I've had jobs where they wanted two channels. I've had jobs where they wanted... Uh, eight. So it depends on what the car is, uh, what we're trying to achieve. But I've done it anywhere from took me ten minutes to to do a simple two channel to an hour and a half, depending on how much uh, details they want. I've definitely run into longer setup times, especially when it's just me. And I I don't know if it's because I've only done a couple. I've only done a handful of of full on records, but. I find that it takes me a damn long time to get to get one wired up. 
Rob, you're probably a lot faster because you use bungee cords and zip ties. Yeah, and the other thing you can do to help is um, use blocks. Put the car up on blocks so you can get under it and access it. That's cool, yeah. Remember to use safety and uh, put a cinder block or something on it because you don't want the blocks to fall out or anything yes. and get squished. <laughs> so safety is very important when you're under the car, especially on, on blocks. So, But I would say if you can do in a car uh, in an hour to an hour and a half with eight mics, uh, that's really good. Okay, because I felt like that was taking me forever. You know, I feel like I'm wiring up a car of... A, Say you're micing up a drum set or whatever with eight mics. It, if it takes an hour and a half just to set the mics, you know. Yeah, you don't have to worry about wind, though, with the drum set. You don't have to worry about the cables getting caught in the engine with the drum set. Right. <laughs> what I teach the guys that work with me is run everything down the same lines. So from the engine, you always want to go to the passenger and into the window. And then you zip those places along the way. Because you have to be thinking about safety. You don't want the mics flying off into something. So that's why it should take that long, because you have to be safety conscious as well for the driver. Exactly, yeah. Cool. Max, how long does it usually take you to just wire up the onboards? It's about the same, an hour, an hour and a half. Depends on what kind of vehicle it is as well. And you also need to make sure, if it, especially on older vehicles, we have noticed that you can get issues with static uh, in some cables, from, so you have to avoid old parts include that has any kind of electricity in, in them and run the cables around these somehow. Yeah, I've run into that too. I have lead pads for that, like uh, giant lead sheets. Okay. That have had to wrap around uh, the recorder, you know, to try to shield it from the EMF. Okay. Yeah, some of those engines can really just throw out just insane static fields. Yes. And the lead pads, by the way, are really heavy, and I don't recommend them because they're a real nuisance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but is it enough to put it around the recorder? You don't need to put it around the cable somehow. I put it around the recorder to try to, to deal with the issues, and I just never felt it was worth all that headache. Uh, it's also good if you're near, um, like if you're on a ship that has sonar or whatever they have on uh, aircraft carriers, okay. uh, radar. Because the radar blast, it'll help protect it from radar blasts as well. Yeah. I had issues with that recently recording an airplane in Canada. And I thought it was some kind of bird. It was so weird until I actually watched the wave files and realized it's some kind of radio thing. Yeah. Uh, how do you guys deal with heat? That's not a problem in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Watson, what do you think? When I worked on Transformers... Um, in Florida, we always have heat. There's, there's never winter here, unlike uh, Max, where he's at. <laughs> um, when I was recording a souped-up 69 Corvette that has over 1,000 horsepower, we had to do uh, burnouts. And that beast melted my lavalier to the fender. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, couldn't hear Channel 1, so I had to tap the driver because he, he couldn't hear me yelling at him to stop the car. When we stopped the car, opened the hood, white smoke started coming out. So <laughs> it was a concept car that they were building up. You know, they, they definitely wanted over a 1,000 horsepower. So we learned that uh, after I replaced the lavalier, we took the uh, engine hood off, and I mounted the mics uh, next to the engine on the body of the car with... Um, creative um, shielding 
you know, counter the wind. So if the car's really hot, like a muscle car, uh, you want to put your microphones elsewhere to capture those sound, sounds. We melted a couple of microphones as well recording a Koenigsegg, but then we bought from from drag racing uh, uh, auto shops, we bought some kind of fireproof hose that you can put around the cables and that can actually stand the fire if, if that's the case. So I can recommend that. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, I, I use something similar. I use a fire blanket and I cut it cut the pieces of the fiber based on, you know, what, what's needed. Uh, but after recording on race to Witch mountain, uh, one of the, the stunt man introduced me to using fire blankets. This fire blankets, are they heavy or, or what makes them fireproof? Uh, it's the fabric. It's, uh, I don't know how you'd explain it. It kind of feels like fiberglass hmm. and it's like sheets. And then you just cut the, cut out the sheet the way you want the, to use it. And you wrap it around the microphone and that protects it from heat. I got a good tip recently. I was recording a really weird uh, all-terrain vehicle, and I was worried about fire as well. And my brother-in-law is a theater tech, and he told me about how the fire laws for th- theaters, the curtains have to be soaked for like 24 hours in this special fluid before you can hang curtains in a theater so that they're fireproof. And uh, he got me a hold of some of that, and I dipped a bunch of... Uh, fabric in that and then wrap the cables in that and i didn't have a fire so i don't know how well it would have worked in that situation <laughs> luckily but uh that was a good tip that i am gonna follow in the future as well hoping i never have to need it actually yeah it's amazing how hot it can get inside the engine compartment of any of those high rpm cars when they're really going i had a couple of sm57s in a man was it a lotus it was something like that that I was amazed they didn't melt. And when we were done with our runs and I went to go remove the mics, they were too hot to handle with my hands. Um, Still passing audio, so go sure. That was awesome. (laughs) Renee, SM58s are indestructible. Yeah. (laughs) There was this guy in Sweden who made a test on an SM57, so he buried it in the ground for one year and then took it up again and and it worked perfectly. Yeah. (laughs) I 100% believe that. Um, but I was, it was my kind of naivety and inexperience that I had no idea how hot it was going to get inside that engine compartment where I mounted those two mics. I was pretty stunned by the fact that they were so hot to the touch, they were going to burnt melt my skin off. Do you have perfect uh, grill marks from the 58 on your face? <laughs> right. No, I didn't go rub my face on it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a, that'd be a pretty badass tattoo, the perfect grill marks. I guess not a tattoo, burn marks. <laughs> right. It's a brand. Brand. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, do you guys cover wheel friction at all with your onboards? Like tire friction to the ground? Max here. Uh, for games, we try to avoid getting that. We want the engine and the exhaust and all the components of the car clean. Wheel friction would be another recording in my book. Interesting. So would you do wheel friction with the engine off? Uh, no, but with a very quiet car, maybe. And uh, with microphones positioned in a different way to, to capture just that. Mm-hmm. For a few few films, I've had to do that. So I had to find the quietest cars. Uh, like four cylinders are powerful enough to do burnouts on gravel, uh, for example. So you find the quietest microphones. 
um, that will reject the uh, exhaust sounds, use that technique. But you do that as a separate pass? Uh, yes. Rob, what about you? If the movie calls for extreme tire sounds, I'll specifically focus on uh, one or two microphones dedicated to tire sounds and use them in a way that focuses specifically on the tire, as Watson was mentioning. So it really depends. Now, if I want to get really clean sounds, you can do downhill and neutral, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're near a mountain, like we'll, with our Land Rover shoot, we went up to the top of the mountain and came, came down in neutral. But for extreme moves like gravel burnouts and stuff like that, it's just a matter of miking it closer to the tires in a way to, to isolate them. And usually the tires are so loud, it'll work. The Prius is also great if you want to get some really clean tire sounds. Just <laughs> lock on the Diane Keaton movie where she was driving it. I recorded for Jerry Ross. Uh, just I locked the brakes on it, on the Prius. It was one of the best tire screeches ever. Nice. Yeah. Wow. I'd like to see that. <laughs> Do any of you guys have experience with the Tesla? I, oh. I recorded uh, that other car. Uh, I don't know, the one they make down near San Diego. It's not the Tesla. It's the one that went out of business. Okay. Try to remember the name of it. I think they used Tesla recordings in uh, the latest Batman's uh, Batmobile. No, was it the Batmobile? No, it wasn't the Batmobile. It was his motorcycle. They used a lot of Tesla recordings as it was kind of amping up. You know, electric engines are an entirely different sound. Uh, uh, the trolleys that I did were all electric engines, and it's a crazy kind of weird that they just do. It's very, very different from a combustion engine. They're very quiet, and you have to, uh, you really need a quiet location, in my opinion, to record electric cars nicely. And they have tons of torque on takeoff. Um, yeah. I'm still looking for the name of that car I recorded. It's like a really fancy $80,000, $100,000 car. Um, What's the fastest car you recorded, Rob? Uh, I think we've probably done 120. You know, I wouldn't know. We are kind of like, that's kind of where we max out in speed, uh, is up there. Right. Nothing faster than that off the top of my head. But we did do uh, a Japanese uh, sliding car for a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, but we didn't really ever get it up that fast. What about you, Watson? Um, GT race cars, we did up to 180. Woo! And for regular, that's on the track, by the way. <laughs> um, and in top secret roads, we did 458 Ferrari Italia. We did up to 150. Jeez. But, you know, what we try to achieve is the consistency of the rise of the sound from idle up to the red line. That way the energy keeps flowing. You know, when you get up right. to the high speed, especially gradually, it, it doesn't sound good anymore. It doesn't sound exciting. So we're in the business of making sounds exciting. So we, we focus more on the 
from the idle again from the idle up to the red line. And your focus is is on getting to the red line as fast as possible. Oh, no, not 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 always. It depends on the project, uh, game or movie. Uh, for games, we often like to gradually go from idle to red line in a span of ten to eighteen seconds. So very gradual. And uh, some scenes and movies I've done, like like the Ferrari, we had to get from 30 miles per hour up to 150 as fast as possible, which is nothing for that car. Hmm. What about you, Max? Fastest car? Uh, I don't know about the GP2 cars, how fast they were since we were not in them. But uh, the fastest car I think we recorded, or the fastest we've been going with the car, uh, is more than... Uh, 200 miles per hour with a Nissan GTR. Jeez. <laughs> Were you in the car? My partner was, yes. I, I, I was in it when they recorded drive-bys. I don't know how fast that was. That was fast too, but I don't think it was that fast. <laughs> it's nutty. Yeah, that's insane. For video games, how do you handle that? Like as far as coverage from for, for your accelerations, do you do the big slow ramps too? Like I don't even know how they implement that stuff. Yeah, there's... There's two different ways most people use. The old school is doing loops. In that case, you need steadies on different RPMs and you make them loop and then you can pitch in between them to get the, the rise in RPM from idle up to redline. And then there's the newer way of doing it, which is the granular way. Uh, and in that case, you need a ramp going from uh, idle up to redline that has to be, like Watson mentioned, uh, a bit more than 10 seconds ideally. And then it chops up all the grains from the explosions in the engines and granulate those, randomizes those. Is that an automatic thing or is that like a manual you have to go and chop out each grain? No, that's an automatic thing. But creating loops is a manual work, and it's quite tidy. It's not that fun. <laughs> so have any of you guys any experience with dynos? Or is that something you guys try and avoid if at all possible? Max here. Um, I did one session with five cars that we recorded both on a dyno and on a track. In my world, it's not that good. It gets a very unnatural sound to the engine. Uh, so I prefer the track recordings. Uh, but you get more control on a dyno. It's easier to create loops, for instance, and it can be easier to get even ramps if you need that. But uh, I prefer the sound of the engine. John, just quickly describe what a dyno is for those that don't know. Yeah, a dyno is where you get... Uh, you, you take the, the wheels off and add two hubs instead. And... From those hubs, you can control the amount of resistance on the wheels. So the car is not moving when you're recording, which is, of course, good in many ways. So you attach the front two hubs to a machine that controls the resistance. And when you rev the engine, you're not actually moving. Uh, you stay still. So you can control the recording process easier. Exactly. But you, uh, you don't get a dynamic sound out of it. You get a very consistent, but not necessarily emotional sound, I guess. No. And also you get the problem, especially with the, like old V8s, because they need the wind draft to, to keep cool. Uh, and instead, since the car is standing still, you need a huge fan. So you kind of get a huge fan causing some problems instead. I've done two dyno sessions, and just like Max, I don't like them. One was a, another Ferrari, and 
the driver was kind of frightened that his tires were spinning at 80, 90 miles per hour. And the car started shifting left and right. And in front of him was the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you know, you, if it fails, if, if the, um, the resistance, the ropes gave way, <laughs> he's going through that wall. Or, may, or not. <laughs> That'll mess up a recording. But his, his, his Ferrari <laughs> would be severely, severely damaged. Another thing is that some of these cars have computers on board that sense something is wrong. So what had happened, the computer shut off the Ferrari. And I thought I was going to die in that. I couldn't afford a Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it, Ferrari. It's just wrong. So in Dino, yeah, you need fans. You need more open space. And you have, if you have, if you find a good one, you can control the environment where everything sounds consistent. But I like, just like Max, I like the natural sound of what the car sounds like on a smooth road. And it just gives you a more natural sound you're accustomed to. Yep, for sure. Uh, To some degree, that's why I'm the outlier here in that I tend to also record a tire friction track with my onboards. Again, I haven't done a whole lot of like the high-end cars or any of the video game stuff. It's more old trucks and indie films. But I find the tire noise gives me another layer of, I don't know, just grittiness and road that I, I do end up definitely cutting into the mix. It ends up helping me out. Um, but I'm the weird one there. <laughs> <laughs> do any of you guys have any tricks to deal with uh, when recording on gravel or rocky terrain on how to keep the mics safe if that are underneath? I guess, Rob, you were the one that was uh, touting undercarriage miking. Uh, I've never had an issue with uh, hitting mics uh, with the undercarriage because I'm not going below the axles. Okay. I'm staying above it, so it's never, it's never been an issue. If you're on muddy or wet roads, you know, then you probably have to look at the splatter pattern, but it's never been an issue. Good to know. Uh, let's talk about buys. Uh, I've seen t- two different techniques with buys, one where you track the car with your mic all the way across and one where you go in the opposite direction of the car with your mic and you kind of swish it in the other direction. I, I find that to go in the opposite direction makes it sound faster, but it's much harder to use in the in the edit. What, what do you guys tend to do when you're dealing with buys? It all depends on how much time we have. I will try to go different directions, follow the car, do the opposite, and EA calls it whipping. When you go uh, against a car, so it sounds right. twice as fast. And what we do is that we, we use the wave file where just before it maxes out the peak. Um, that way we're not going to use the overall length of the wave file. We're going to use very close uh, towards where the peak is. Um, so I just do as much as possible uh, with... Uh, Sometimes two microphones I'm holding, two stereos or one stereo, one uh, mono. So the stereo will be like an XY or an MS that you'll set up static in front and then you'll have a mono that you track with? Yeah, uh, or, or both the same position. Um, sometimes the assistants will follow what I do um, so that if I'm panning to the right, they will also pan with me, sort of like following a conductor in you know, an orchestra. Oh, they'll pan on the actual mixer? Uh, panning uh, as we're pointing the mic at the car as it's passing by. Cool. Max, what about you? Yeah, we do following. 
but we have quite a lot of microphones set up for for the device but the actual shotgun microphones they do follow the car you mean you set up like a microphone array for the for the car to pass in front of yes what what kind of array is that what does that look like along a straight we usually have a center position which is a holophone microphone recording uh, in surround and then we have a shotgun microphone positioned at the same place at, as the center position. We have found that the Sanken CSS5 works extremely well with the holophone microphone. They blend really nice together. Mm. And then we have a wide stereo pair, one far left and one far right, which could be shotguns as well. I like to use the MKH-8060s for that. And they are positioned pointing down the straight each way. So they are not moving. Uh, and then where the car turns around in each end, uh, we have some kind of setup. We have a shop setup in ORTF, for instance, where we can just leave any handheld device there, like a Zoom or an Olympus or anything, depending on what gear we have with us. And so with regards to post on the buy, when you bring all those tracks in with your, with your two wide angles and your holophone and your shotgun, was the shotgun tracking or is it static? No, it's tracking. So when you, when you bring all that into post, like how do you approach that mix? It's up actually to the person doing the mix to uh, to choose which microphones he prefers and which bice he fer- prefers. But you, in just one pass by with that setup, you get like several approaches and ways in different microphones. Uh, so you get quite a lot of content to choose from. I guess so. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was just going to add that we do the same thing with planes because you don't have that much engine time on planes. So by having a lot of microphones on a very long straight with a big distance in between gives you several buys in one actual buy. And we found that very helpful. That's really cool. Sorry, Rob, how do you approach buys? Uh, I do follow buys. And uh, the reason we do that is because coming up in the 90s, we heard a lot of recordings that had the static passbys. Yep. And the passby would happen so quickly, it was very difficult for an editor to use it. So we always did follow buys. Now, as far as the reverse buy, I've never seen that done. And I would, all my peers would do it in sound editing, in the editing process. So I don't think a reverse pan buy makes any sense. But where it does make sense, is if you're doing a static engine or say a static airplane, uh, you whip the mic across it and that could be used for quick cuts. You know, when you're punching a cut, you use a whip pan on it and that can be a, a good technique to help the editor. Interesting. Uh, but uh, static buys, to me, they have, the peak is so much bigger than the rest of the sound that it's really difficult for the editor to cut and it's too short. So. I always try to give the editor as much to work with as possible. Yeah, the whip buys, I've only seen it done. And, and Watson, I guess you're the only one around here that's actually done it. And that's, that's why they're so interesting to me, because I don't, I, I don't have any personal knowledge, I guess, of what they sound like. They just seem beefier. And it depends on the vehicle. That blue Jaguar I recorded with the 550 horsepower, it's one of those cars that it's going to sound very quiet like a luxury car. But when you punch it, it could really scream. And it's got a sport mode to really make it louder. 
So certain cars like that were, when they hit certain RPMs, they will sound louder. And sometimes you don't know until you're trying it. So sometimes we want to make it beefier due to whip passbys. So EA liked that quite a bit. And certain other projects, they wanted it for that reason. So again, it depends on the vehicle. It depends on the audio director, sound editor. Right. And I guess that makes a recording that's a lot uh, quicker than a, a follow by, by a, probably by 4X, right? Yeah, sometimes as much. Yeah. And uh, it also depends on location. You're on a track or, again, in a, in a private road. Interesting. You could speed or not speed. You know, legal. <laughs> need for speed or need for not speed. We run out of time a little bit here, but just to, to dive into it quickly. Um, Post and deliverables, uh, broadly speaking, how do you guys approach it? Assuming that you're that you're not the editor, if you're if you're turning sounds over, Watson, what what kind of files are you looking to deliver? You know, on a standard like say six mic onboard record of something not insanely challenging. Once you bring the files back into your editor, what are you doing with them before you ship them off? Depends on the client, and sometimes they just want me to name what that session was for: ramp, uh, slow, ramp, fast. Creative driving, aggressive driving, regular driving, most often file naming. And a lot of uh, post-production studios will want to chop up the sounds themselves. So it just depends on the job. Max, what about you? Our older recordings were mainly on boards. So we just made sure they were all in sync to make it easy for, for the client. And we named each track with what it was. Nowadays, the recordings are so much more complex, so we either deliver them in a Pro Tools session with location markers showing exactly what it is, and where we have added it in the comments field, we put in what microphone, what recorder, where it's positioned, and all the details. Or we just make bounces of each track, so they get all the tracks in sync as well. It depends on what they want. Do you do any EQ compression, anything like that, before delivering them? No, nothing like that. No, no, nothing. No no noise reduction, no nothing. It's uh, all raw. Cool. Rob, how do you approach it? I'll go through with my team and we'll uh, edit the tracks and catalog them. So just to make it, give the editor just the basics of what they need so they can get up and go. They don't have to worry about... Uh, slates and you know dead air and that kind of stuff because the, the the clients i'm working with they need optimized workflow and that's what they expect from me that they get the files they're named they can cut them right away so i have to put a lot of effort into cleaning and making sure they're pristine for them do you do any post-processing any eq compression editing internal editing i guess other than tops and tails um, well you want to get rid of pops and clicks you know if rock hits the mic you should take it out you know, if the low, level's a little low on the channel, you should bring it up, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, generally, it's no compression. That's up to the editor, in my opinion. If you can help remove a little wind noise, you know, if you're in, on your higher speeds, then, you know, do a little isotope. But you never want to take away from the natural sound at all. So we never go, we never do that much uh, touching it. And you just give straight wave files. Do you deal with metadata at all? Oh, yeah, we do full metadata. Poly, polyphonic, single file polyphonic. Like I said, I, they expect me to deliver stuff that's ready to go because, you know, the editors are very expensive. They don't have time to, to look through raw files. Right. 
Any other thoughts, you guys, about the difference between dealing with film and with dealing with video games? Uh, some of these things has been uh, mentioned here already with positioning of microphones. I can, like Rob mentioned, he liked to position microphones under belly because it gives you more sense of the vehicle moving. And while placing the microphones in the engine compartment makes it more like a dyna. I think in a game you prefer it in the engine because it gets less, you, you get less other noises, which is needed to be able to make either loops or ramps for granular synthesis in the, in the game. Uh, and also uh, the whole thing with the with bice, pass-bice approaches, cornering, all these things are not as important for recordings when it comes to games. Watson, what do you have? This depends on a project. Um, I found that uh, video games, I have to do quite a bit more variations uh, versus seeing the uh, prototype picture and, and actually recording for that specific picture in, on film or uh, commercial. So... I do find quite a bit of video games more challenging. It's uh, quite often the game might change direction. So they may want more of this and less of that, for example. So, But the other way, I've seen a Dodge Ram commercial where I was given my shot list, which was basically do everything you can because we haven't received the picture yet. So I've had to record as much as possible. Yeah, that seems almost impossible because of how... I guess uh, infinitely vocal most vehicles are. It seems like a lot of that almost, you, you can almost approach it like ADR because they could make so many different noises depending on you know, speed and action and, and surface and everything else. That's got to be a huge challenge. You also have the possibility to, to choose the camera viewing games mostly. And that adds another dimension to it as well. So for recording for games, you really need to get all the different positions of the vehicle perfectly well. Uh, so that you can switch between them. Right. And, uh, you know, it depends on the driver of the car. You know, they are the actor who will make the, sound, the car sound great or boring. <laughs> and also the player of the game. They, uh, you know, if Max and I were playing Need for Speed against each other, you know, I might break a little earlier, going around that 90-degree turn, and Max might just go all the way through and corner the best he can rather than try and do some breaking. So I might gunner harder after I do a breaking, so it gives it a different sound. So these are some of the variations I'm talking about for, for the recordings. Yeah, I guess you have to do downshifts, and yeah, I guess you have to cover breaking in a different way in games, right? Yeah, and also it depends on the studio. Uh, what what uh, Max was saying that... It, it's old school versus new school. You have uh, the software that can control the ramp for you. Um, I find a lot of drivers cannot do a steady RPM while on the move very well. We're trying to count 10 seconds of sustained RPM while uh, the car is moving. It's difficult to watch the road, trying to keep your foot steady on that 4,000 RPM. So this this newer way is much easier to to do the ramp from idle up to red line in a span of maybe sixteen seconds. But it's not really much use to have a driver either to keep a steady RPM driving like on four thousand RPMs, because once you do that, you lose the load of the engine and it doesn't sound loaded anymore. 
so you need to find other ways of doing it. That's why the granular way is so much easier than creating loops. Uh, there, are, there are certain games today I still work, work on that still use some of the old style. Yes. Not everything is AAA budget, so some people still use old ways and still I do get shot lists of steady RPMs on a move. So do both. Huh. Just before we uh, wrap up, guys, just a quick question. Are you guys also expected to get doors and trunks and uh, gear shifts, like uh, the non-engine sounds, when you're hired? Yes. Uh, for example, what, what Rob what? talked about, routing cables to one area and, and routing to the passenger window, for example. For transformers, I've had to do that quite a bit because they want the sound of everything that made a sound for the transforming sound. Right. So I had to open and slam uh, hoods, uh, doors, even the gas door, um, shifting while the car is off. Everything you, you can make a sound to make the transforming sound. Max here. Uh, we do that separately as a, either before or after the, the driving uh, or when while cooling the engine sometimes. But it also depends on how rare the vehicle is. Like with the tanks and planes, then we try to record switches and uh, hatches and stuff like that. On a standard car, maybe I wouldn't use the time for that if if I didn't have some time over. Rob? Uh, generally speaking, it depends on how unique it is. Uh, like Max said, uh, if it's not, we don't bother because we have a huge library with thousands of you know, all the standard sounds for cars. Uh, but if it is unique, we will take the time to record it. My main focus is performance uh, of the car. So Foley sounds can be done in Foley much, much easier, more easy, or from a library. And, and, you know, one thing, guys, that I think we haven't really touched on, or maybe we did and I missed it, but, you know, we didn't really talk about modifying vehicles like, you know, unscrewing, uh, you know, the tailpipes or, you know, putting oil slick down for burnouts or using uh, very steep hills. I mean, those tricks are really important to making great car sounds. Yeah, like what kind of vehicle prep do you tend to do? I know one of the obviously straightforward things, especially when you're just bringing someone's vehicle in, is to get out or lock down all the rattly things that are in the cab. Well, the, but... Sometimes you want to have it rattle or sometimes you want, you know, if you have a hole in a muffler and a tailpipe, it sounds really cool. So you know, <laughs> if you work with mechanics, you can, uh, you know, with good mechanics, you could shape the sound of a car. And I think that's something that, I don't know, maybe we can talk about that next time. Cool. Well, thank all you guys for, for coming on this. This has been just super informative to me. I only have a few full-on vehicle recordings under my belt but it's I, I see it as a huge challenge and it's a lot of fun so thank you guys um for coming on and sharing all your knowledge with us it was great thank you uh, thank you my pleasure thank you very much guys this podcast is going to be featured on designing sound as part of their theme for next month so it's going to get uh, a little more than just our regular listeners it gets a push through that as well which is obviously a, a big engine for this industry that website everybody goes there that's great cool Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Max, Watson, and Rob for jumping on the line with us today. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tonebenders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. 
Also check us out at facebook.com slash Podcast. Thanks, guys. We'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Take Thank care. you. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net, where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders, or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at tonebenders.net. 